0: Last week we dealt with verses 17 through 24, which we talked about, the Apostle Paul describing this change, almost like a change of clothes, put off the old, put on the new. It's in that same context, the the passage really flows from that, that we'll look at verses 25 through 32 this morning. But let's begin back at verse 17 again. This I say, therefore, and testify on the Lord that you henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart. Who, being past feeling, have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ. If so be that you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That you put off concerning the former conversation the old man. Which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore Tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this word, and we thank you for the love that you have shown for us, the kindness and the compassion and the grace and the forgiveness. And we ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that we would be like you, that we would be imitators of you. I ask, Lord, that you would please bless the reading of your word this morning. Give me the ability to proclaim it with accuracy and with your authority, and forgive me of my sin. For it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. <coughs> Friends, you are in a battle. At this very moment and at every moment, you are on a battlefield of life, engaged in spiritual warfare. In one way, you are the active participant in this battle. You are applying your effort and your energy to the side that you've chosen. In another way, you are the prize of the battle. You are the cause over which this battle is being fought. And in that battle, you have others standing shoulder to shoulder with you, and how you treat your fellow soldiers matters. <clears throat> I encourage you to remember the way the Apostle Paul has developed this letter, right? Prior to this chapter, he has argued that all members of the church at Ephesus, despite all their differences of Jewish and Gentile backgrounds and male and female, or richer. Poor, they're not only one body in Christ, but in this chapter, He has called the church members at Ephesus to up in verse 1 walk worthy of the calling to which you were called, in verse 3 to maintain the unity of the Spirit, bound by peace, in verses 17 through 16. Use the the gifts Christ has given to each church member in order that the church would mature and, and grow up in love. And then in verses 17 through 24, no longer live vain, futile lives like the unbelievers, but like changing clothes, take off that old sinful you and put on the new you who through Christ reflects the very image of God, your creator. In short, what he has reminded that church is that, look, you're you're called together, you're united together, you work together, you grow together, you change together. You might remember there is a constant theme that I've tried to repeat through this letter. It's that all those whom Christ has reconciled to God, he has also reconciled to one another. But now let's just ask, really? Really? Does it feel that way? Do you look around the church building and you're tempted to identify empty seats where some have left, refusing to be reconciled to one another? Do you see in the assembly this morning some people who are sitting with you, with whom you do not feel reconciled? Because there is some wedge driven between you. Something has been said or something has been done or some look or some word or some offense has created a divide. If so, something is wrong and Paul is about to address that. To grasp the purpose of this text, we have to recognize, first off, that Paul is writing to church members. This is not an evangelistic passage. Right? It is written to those who have already been evangelized. And that's important because I don't want anyone to read the examples here and think, well, Paul is saying this is what you have to do in order to become a Christian. He is not saying that. Repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, that is what determines whether you not, or not you're a Christian. But once you are a believer... He's about to describe, this is how you have to behave. And so we just saw in context, he said, put off the old man and put on the new man. Now he's going to give some very straightforward examples of how to do that. And every example has this very simple, don't do that, do this. Right In verse 25, don't lie, speak the truth. In verse 26, be angry, but don't sin. In verse 28, don't steal, work hard. In verse 29, don't use your words to tear down, use your words to build up. That's fairly uncomplicated, right? But uncomplicated doesn't mean easy. I wish it did. Easy to understand does not equal easy to do. And in order to take this seriously, I think it's important that we remember we are in a battle. Paul reminds us of this in this text. Later on in the same letter, he's going to be talking about putting on the armor of God, right? So he's leading up to that very idea of battle. But even in this text, he's giving this to us. It's helpful for you to see a, a couple of statements that Paul makes as he's giving these examples. The first statements in verse 27 he says neither give place to the devil now in the immediate context he wrote in verse 26 not to hold on to your wrath and we'll deal with that in a moment because holding on to your anger stewing in it he says gives place to the devil the idea is that it gives satan An opportunity. That's how the ESV translates this. Give no opportunity to the devil. The NIV does a good job here too. When it says, do not give the devil a foothold. If you are embracing unrelenting wrath and stewing in anger, then you have given Satan a foothold, an opportunity in your life. But is it only true about anger and wrath? Is it true of any other of these examples of sin that Paul's about to deal with? I would argue it's true of all of them. For example, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, Paul notes that as part of the principle of forgiveness, he says it is lest Satan should get an advantage on us, for we're not ignorant of his devices. Right? So it's true here about unrelenting wrath. It's true to the Corinthians about you know, an unforgiving heart. It's true about lying. It's true about stealing. It's true about evil speaking. It's true about bitterness. You're living in a spiritual battlefield engaged in that war and Satan would love to get a foothold in order to gain an advantageous position over your life and the life of the Lord's assembly if you live in a way where you're embracing, you're doing the things on this list that Paul says not to do, if you engage in those divisive sins, you are making the devil's task easier. And it is a betrayal to the very cause of Christ to which you've been called. The second statement I want you to see is in verse 30. He says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. The word for grieve there is exactly what you would think of when you think of someone grieving. It means to cause sorrow or to cause pain, to give distress. All sin grieves the Holy Spirit of God. He's the spirit of truth, the spirit of life, he's the the spirit of Christ, the spirit of promise, right? Jesus said, Jesus called the Holy Spirit the comforter. And when we sin, we are causing discomfort and grief to the very spirit who comforts us. And when Paul adds in verse 30 that the spirit we grieve with sin is also the spirit which has sealed us until the day of redemption, You ought to think about the implication of that for just a moment. The Holy Spirit has indwelled every believer and is not going away, right? We are sealed with the Spirit until the day of redemption. He secures us until that day. And yet we can spend that time grieving the Holy Spirit within us. When you go through this list and you read about lying and anger and stealing and evil speaking and bitterness. You should know an unbeliever, an unbeliever can probably live their life that way and find themselves pretty content in the process. But a Christian indwelled by the Holy Spirit cannot and I don't mean should not, I mean can not live that way and be content. Because the very Spirit that forever indwells them is grieving, is sorrowing in that process. And when, so, when you see a believer who lives a lie and is unhappy in it and who holds on to anger and you see it leads to bitterness or they, they speak evil and they can't bring themselves to embrace God's peace, this is why in their lives they have given a foothold. To the devil, they have given Satan an advantageous position. And in the process, they have grieved the Holy Spirit of God, causing sorrow and pain to the very spirit that animates their new life in Christ. So in this text, Paul isn't saying, you know, well, try out a few of these recommendations to see if y'all can get along better. What he is telling us, the meaning of this text, is every sin which drives a wedge between believers gives an advantage to the the devil and grieves the Holy Spirit of God. So in this chapter where he says, well, you're called together and you're united together, you work together, you grow together, you change together. He now gives five basic principles of how you live together. Five principles basic principles to prevent driving a wedge between believers. I will walk through them all one at a time in a moment, but I'll give you all five right now. Speak honestly. Get good and mad. Replace stealing with sharing. Watch your mouth. Tame your temperament. First, speak honestly in verse 25. Wherefore, put away lying. Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Very literally what Paul says there in the original language is put away the lie. Put away that life of falsehood. In another place, you know, he includes all liars on a list of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. You can't live that way, not as a child of God. When Jesus was in a dispute with the religious leaders, he argued that their dishonesty, their lying, was proof that they were not children of God. Here's what he says in John 8, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it. If Satan is the father of lies, it is small wonder that lies seem so natural to us. Oh, I couldn't do it. I wasn't feeling good. I was just joking. I didn't get the message. The check is in the mail. All these things we call little white lies eventually make us colorblind. We lie without giving a second thought to it and even feel like we have done the right thing in the process as long as it prevents us from being embarrassed or it makes someone else feel good about themselves. But lying in any form, lying on tax returns, cheating on tests, accepting too much change at the grocery store, whatever it is, every lie is embracing a kind of falsehood that we are to lay aside. In lying, we are not following the one who proclaimed himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. And more than just speaking outright lies, Paul adds to this command in verse 25, speak every man truth to his neighbor. This is a a quotation of Zechariah 8, verse 16 in the Old Testament. Speak truth to your neighbor. Speaking truth goes beyond don't lie. You know how we are. And I will just, I am probably better at this than most. We like to make up technicalities in order to be deceptive. As soon as you defend yourself with the words, well, technically, you are technically wrong. And what classification of humanity is it that deserves our honesty? Paul says it's your neighbor. A man once asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Do you remember how Jesus responded? He told the story of the Good Samaritan which essentially explains it's everybody you come in contact with. Everyone is worthy of your honesty because your honesty is not about the person you're talking to. Your honesty shows the character of the person who's talking. It's not them, it's you. This is especially true within the Lord's church. Paul says at the end of verse 25, for we are members one of another. Listen, your body only works right if all the body parts are on the same page. Tony Merida explained it this way. He said, Quote, Your words greatly affect the whole body. If my eye says to my hand, that iron is not hot, and my hand touches it, I will get burned. Since we are united together, false words hurt the whole body. Falsehood stifles unity. Truth strengthens unity. Frankly, this is one of those things that just shouldn't need to be stressed within the Lord's church, but obviously it does. Can we just speak honestly with one another? Second. Get good and mad. Verse 26. Be angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. I may be guilty of trying to be too clever here with this point, but I want you to think about what Paul's saying. He's giving this this list of things not to do, right? But Paul doesn't start this one with don't. Surprisingly, he starts this one with do, right? Be ye Angry. Does it seem strange to you that Paul says Christians must get angry? If we're grasping the text correctly, the implication is that a Christian who never gets angry has, in fact, given a foothold to Satan. A Christian who never gets angry has, in fact, grieved the Holy Spirit. And I would argue a believer who never gets angry is either entirely Blind to the consequences of sin or indifferent to the consequences of sin. <clears throat> so let's start here. Who is our perfect example in all things? Jesus. Did Jesus ever get angry? As would he be our perfect example in anger? Well, of course he got angry. You know, Jesus got angry at the temple when the worshipers were being abused by, you know, there were the, the sacrifice peddlers and the money exchangers. He made a whip and drove them out. He whipped the tables full of money over. Jesus was also angry at his own disciples when parents brought children to be held by him and the disciples turned those children away because it didn't seem convenient to them. Jesus was angry in the synagogue when he went in and there was a man with a a withered hand who needed to be healed and the Pharisees that were looking on didn't care about the man's well-being. All they cared about was whether or not we'll be able to catch Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. It says Jesus looked about in anger on all of them because of the hardness of their heart. So was Jesus angry? Yes, repeatedly angry, seriously angry. And we're called to do the same if we follow Jesus. Paul says in our text, it's also be angry, <laughs> don't sin. Hence, get good and angry. The difference between Jesus' anger and ours is that his anger was not self focused rage, worshipers were being abused. Children were being rejected. The man with the withered hand suffered from the heartlessness of the Pharisees. If you can encounter the same kind of things and not be angry, then you are either blind to the consequences of sin or indifferent to the consequences of sin. Either way, never being angry is not an act of righteousness. But Jesus' anger did not come from a heart of hatred. Jesus' anger wasn't a quick reactive strike to someone who hurt him. In fact, Jesus' anger wasn't about himself at all. How did he react to personal offenses? Father, forgive them as he's being crucified. That should tell us the anger that, that is created in us when we're personally offended that is not righteous anger, right? I'm mad because somebody mistreated me. That wasn't Jesus' anger. Also, Jesus' anger was never out of control. Jesus got angry and did not sin. Paul goes on to warn us about the, one of the pitfalls of, that we face in our own anger. It, it's not that anger you know, grips us when we see wrongdoing. It's that we get such a tight grip on that anger that we will never let it go. And so he says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Obviously, this is not making a literal statement about sundown. Sundown today is supposed to be at about 520. He's not saying that if you get angry at 5.15, you only got five minutes to get over it. But if you can hold off to 5.21, take the whole day. If you live at the South Pole, I guess you could get about three months from May to July to be angry. This isn't about the sun. The idea is do not allow it to get entrenched into your heart. Deal with it. Deal with it righteously. Deal with it wisely, but Deal with it. Don't don't harbor this. If you just hold on to anger and wrath, you are giving the devil an opportunity and you are grieving the Holy Spirit of God. Third, he says, replace stealing with sharing. Verse 28, let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the things which is good, that he might have to give to him that needs. All of this is very reminiscent of the Ten Commandments, by the way, right? Don't lie, don't bear false witness. Don't kill. Jesus tells us that unrelenting anger in your heart is what leads to murder, and now thou shalt not steal, right? Theft was a common practice in first century culture. It was sometimes even considered an honorable profession as long as you didn't get caught at it. We are not immune from the temptation to steal. If any of y'all were here a couple Wednesdays ago, we were in Proverbs looking at the call of misfoolishness. Remember what she said? Stolen water is sweet. Like, you're going to like the fact that we, we took it this way. And his autobiography, Augustine, records this moment of self-realization when he stole something that he already had plenty of. He just stole it for the sheer joy of stealing. Stole it because it was wrong. Because doing something wrong and getting away with it is exciting. The last, This past Wednesday night, Tracy came to church with this exciting story of watching some folks try to steal from Walmart. This is bound in the heart of all of us. We're greedy. We want what isn't ours. And just like we make excuses for little white lies, we ought to come up with a category called little white thefts, right? We'll take supplies from work. We'll exaggerate deductions on tax returns. We'll take a few dollars from mom's purse. These things aren't big deals. Paul says it is. What's the other option to stealing? Well, Paul says, there's really only one other option. Work for what you get. It's not sufficient just that the thief stops stealing. Paul says he has to start working. Paul writes to the church in 2 Thessalonians and says, if a man won't work, then don't let him eat. The idea of the phrase here of let him labor working with his hands the things which is good is essentially let him start engaging in honest work with his own hands. There's the positive, right? It's not just don't do this. It's also do that. Stop stealing. Start working. In fact, using... A Greek word here, Paul is describing strenuous labor. It's not just working, it's honest working. It's diligent working. Strenuous labor, diligent labor. So it is a fair application here to say that if you're being paid by an employer to do a job and you're not working diligently at the task, you're only doing what you have to do in order to collect the paycheck, you need to ask yourself whether even your work counts as stealing. This text gets into the motivation for stealing, which is self-satisfaction. It also gets into the motivation for working. The end of verse 28 says that he might have to give to him that needs. So let me just insert here. and I recognize I'm 700 years too late, but Robin Hood stealing from the rich in order to give to the poor was not an act of righteousness working in order to give to the poor is an act of righteousness and while this doesn't prohibit wise investing or growing your bank account it does tell us that giving is the righteous motivation for getting Right? The goal of working is not to stockpile money. Romans twelve thirteen says to distribute to the saints that are in need. Paul here says that you, you get in order that you'll be able to give to those who have needs. That takes a change of heart. There's probably no better example of this kind of radical transformation from stealing to sharing than the man Zacchaeus. In Luke 19, Jesus encounters this slimy little tax collector who was a thief, right? He had had spent his time as a traitor to his country and as a thief from his neighbors. And encountering Jesus turned his life upside down. Jesus, in that text, did not even have to insist on a change to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus freely volunteered from the depths of his heart, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor, and the other half I'm going to use to more than make up for the thefts I've done. Has your heart changed like that? Listen, stealing does not have to be putting on a ski mask and going into the bank it doesn't have to be sneaking into a dark house at night. It happens in a dozen of common everyday choices. And a life that follows Jesus stops stealing, and starts working. Fourth, he says, watch your mouth. In <laughs> Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, building up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Let's just focus on that word corrupt for a moment. The Greek word here is sapros, and it means filthy, rancid, putrid, rotten. It is a very picturesque word. In fact, this is the word Jesus uses in his parables to describe rotten trees and rotten fruit and rotten fish. Doesn't that just make you want to get sick? Well, that's the point. You can use rotten words, right? Whether it's vulgar language or vicious slander or rude jokes or malicious gossip, the very purpose of those rotten words is designed to make someone sick. Though our tongues are difficult to control, we must control them. James describes the tongue as a a little spark that sets big fires. He says in James 3 verse 6, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell. That's lovely, right? The troubling inspiration for that horrific image is that our words reflect our hearts. When Jesus used the same word for Rotten trees producing rotten fruit. The point he was making is that what comes out of you finds the source from what's inside of you. Rotten words are spoken from a rotten heart. And only when your heart is changed, when the Lord Jesus is the desire of that heart and and you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, only then will your words be changed. John MacArthur notes that after prohibiting rotten talk, Paul sets three standards for what would be righteous talk. Essentially, is it appropriate? Is it edifying? Is it gracious? Look at verse 29 again. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. The basic idea Paul's putting forward there is that the words we use should be, one, fitting to the occasion. Second, it should be edifying, it should build people up. And third, they should be gracious, it it should administer grace to the people who hear us talk. Now, for speech to be good, it has to be true. But it needs to be more than just true. If you've ever heard somebody's words defended as, well, I was just being brutally honest. Remind yourself, brutality is not necessary for honesty. The words that we speak, though they must be honest, ought to always be fitting for the occasion is the idea of what Paul's saying here. And that can be a a difficult standard, I know. This is a personal example I'm sometimes asked to officiate the funeral of some person who is beloved in their family but as best as we know never turned to faith in Jesus would it be fitting for me to get up and preach the hellfire and brimstone sermon about where they are right now well I could say it was true although I can't really know that for sure but I'm confident even if it's true it wouldn't be fitting for the occasion What does fit the occasion and what I do know and can say with certainty is that all those who turn to faith in Jesus will be saved. That The Lord alone has the ability to comfort troubled hearts when you're mourning. There is never a need to compromise truth, but there is a need to use good words that are suitable to the occasion, which is what Paul's saying here. He also says it has to be edifying, for speech to be edifying, it must build people up. That does not mean, listen, that does not mean we are prohibited from speaking words that someone might find hurtful. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? You can build others up by encouraging them to correct something in their life, in their life, But you know full well in the process whether the purpose of your words is edifying them or not. You know you can say words that technically I was trying to build them up, but your intent was to tear them down. Speak thoughtful, uplifting, encouraging words. It also says it has to administer grace to the hearers for speech to be gracious. It is spoken in kindness, right? Grace is undeserved favor, right? If you speak to someone and it hurts them and your reaction is, well, they deserved that, then you have entirely missed the point of gracious speech. Every member of our church claims to have experienced the grace of God through faith in Jesus. So there's no call for our speech to be anything less than gracious at every moment. Paul tells the church at Colossae in Colossians 4.6, let your speech be always with grace. The Bible has a lot to say about the way we talk. Proverbs 25.11 describes well-spoken words as if they are golden apples in a silver frame, which is just a really cool picture. Right? You don't have to be an eloquent wordsmith to be well-spoken, but you do have to be speaking graciously and kindly and thoughtfully with the intent of building others up. And then fifth, he says to tame your temperament. This final basic principle of new life in Christ is sort of a, a catch-all. It repeats some of the prior commands and gives the basic temperament of a Christian. Verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, but be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Just to quickly walk through those descriptions in verse 31, bitterness is the, kind of resentful attitude that comes when you hold on to a grudge Hebrews 12 15 it pictures bitterness like a a root that's going to grow it's going to take hold and it's not going to stop if you hold a grudge if you maintain that resentment it's going to grow into a malicious monster that's holding on to you more than you're holding on to it Wrath here is the idea of indignation flying into sort of instantaneous rage in the heat of the moment. And then I love, just because Paul can't make anything easy, verse 31, he says to put away anger, which is the very same word that he used up in verse 26 to say that you should sometimes be angry. Now he says, put that away from you. So as we said, there is a kind of anger that is righteous. And even that is something we are to let go of quickly. But now he says, if your anger isn't for the right reason and handled the right way, it's not right for you to have. You have to put it away. Clamor is the word for shouting or calling out. Loud vocal outbursts in which you raise your voice, shouting and quarreling with others, making them feel small. Some would try to excuse this by saying, well, that's just the way I am. But there's no excuse for this. This is not the way you should be. Evil speaking is a single Greek word, blasphemia, (laughs) right? This isn't blasphemy of God. It's evil speaking pointed at others. The idea is to slander or defame other people without regard to whether what you're saying is true or not true, you can still be slandering people. Malice is simply ill will. It is hostility in any form. Listen, you, you begin by wishing ill on others and progress to speaking ill about others and then end up engaging in evil acts towards others. Malice, ill will has to be removed from your temperament. This is not the way of a Christian because it is not the way of Christ himself. We really have to stop and ask ourselves, well, why is it that our heart is like this? Hasn't it changed? Hasn't the Lord Jesus shown you a better way by loving you and by giving you love and then telling you to focus that love on the very people who at this moment are the objects of your bitterness and wrath and ill will? Much like earlier in the chapter when Paul encouraged us to put off the old man and put on the new man. Now Paul says, put away those evil vices from verse 31, entirely remove them from your life. But you are not going to end up with an empty spot in your character in the process because into that hole in your heart from which you've removed those wicked defects, you will fill that hole with the Christ-like qualities of verse 32. Be kind to one another. Why? Well, because God's been kind to you. Listen, if you just read this letter from beginning to end, the way Paul wrote it, the virtue of God's kindness back in chapter 2 would still be in your mind as you read this. Back in Ephesians 2, verse 7, he wrote that the One of the purposes of God is to spend eternity showing us, quote, the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness to us through Christ Jesus. And now he says, well, you have to be kind to one another. But listen, to be kind to one another, you have to be around one another. Kindness cannot be confused with like this internalized feeling or this, this basic character of your heart. Kindness is an outward act. It is the outward action of love towards someone else. He heads tenderhearted in verse 32. Tenderheart is one of my favorite words in scripture. It means to be compassionate. The idea of this word it's based in this, this Greek word for the, oddly enough, your guts, your bowels, right? Because that's where they thought the seat of emotions was. And so the idea of this word is that there is an empathy, this, this compassion somewhere in the very essence of your being, and it is focused most acutely on your brothers and sisters in Christ. Have you ever had this like emotional reaction of compassion towards someone that you actually felt it like you, you felt it in your heart, you felt it in your guts, it was real? That's what this is, to be tender hearted and forgiving one another. Now just embrace this for a moment. Do you know that to forgive someone you must have been done wrong. I know that's not like a super deep theological statement or anything. But we so often refuse to be forgiving because we will think, oh, they were wrong. They don't deserve forgiveness. You wouldn't expect me to forgive them if you knew how hurt I was. Well, that's what forgiveness is, right? Right? It's being hurt, it's being mistreated, it's being rightly offended and then forgiving the person who hurt, mistreated or offended you. Letting it go. And why we should do this in verse 32 gets to the whole point of this text. The end of verse 32, forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. There's a parallel text to this in Paul's letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 3, 13 he says this bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another even as christ forgave you so you also must do that is well you have a complaint you have a right to the complaint you have a legitimate complaint it's a valid point so what did the lord jesus have a complaint against you Did God the Father have a valid complaint against your sin? And what did they do? Didn't they forgive you and kindness to you and and tenderhearted compassion to you? Have we forgotten that or we just decide we're not gonna follow the Lord's example anymore? In Matthew 18, Jesus told the story of two debtors. One owed this massive unpayable debt. And when he couldn't pay, he was immediately forgiven, completely pardoned. And then he went to his friend who owed him a few dollars and putting his hand around that man's neck, started saying, pay me what you owe me. When the master heard that he was unwilling to practice the same kind of forgiveness that he had received, the master delivered him to the tormentors in order to extract payment. Jesus concluded that story by saying this. So likewise will my heavenly father do to you also if you from your hearts won't forgive your brother their trespasses. When you are unforgiving because that other person who was entirely in the wrong caused you some kind of pain, then aren't you being the guy in that story? if in your unforgiveness you want to harbor a grudge until you are satisfied that you have somehow extracted the appropriate amount of pain for what you have experienced, you are ignoring that the real cost of forgiveness was paid through the pain of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. So how serious is all of this? I know we are tempted to read a text like this and and reduce it down to like a kindergarten level and say, okay, don't tell lies, don't be mad, don't steal, be sure to talk nice. As if the Apostle Paul is writing about some minor matters of Christian faith. There's nothing minor about this. You're at war. Every moment of your life is spent on the battlefield. Every action you do, every emotion you embrace, every word you speak... It is of consequence. It reveals whose side you're on. There's no little white lies. There's no petty thefts. There's no insults that you can just wipe away by saying, oh, I was just kidding. Every sin which drives a wedge between believers gives an advantage to Satan and grieves the Holy Spirit of God. How we think and feel and treat one another is a reflection of the Lord Jesus and how seriously you take the forgiveness that's found in him.